Hello, and welcome back to Hollywood at Home with the Creative Coalition, hosted by Robin Bronk. It's your moment to hear the unfiltered backstory of Hollywood's biggest stars. So sit back, relax, and listen in, as today, we have the pleasure of welcoming the director, writer, and producer of Peacock's new miniseries, Paul T. Goldman, Jason Wolliner, to the hot seat. So are you from, I saw you went to Palm High School. Yes. So you're from Westchester? Are you live in Westchester? I was born in the Bronx. I lived there till I was like 14. And my dad, when I got a job teaching at the uh, high school and middle school in Pelham, and so me and my brothers were allowed to go, and then eventually we moved to Pelham. Uh, we live in New Well, we're in California now, but lived in New live in New Rochelle. Oh, okay, yeah, I uh, yeah. So I, I went to high school in Pelham. I moved there, lived there for a bunch of years, and then lived in like Fleetwood and Mount Vernon, and then eventually it's like you're saying all the train station stops. Yeah. Hudson Line. <laughs> so yeah, all my kids went to New Rochelle High School. Oh, no, actually, actually they didn't. Right. Wait, scratch that. It's like two went one went to New I don't know what like what's wrong with me. <laughs> one went to New Rochelle High School and two went to the Shekta. Oh, wait, where's that? It's uh the Shekta schools in um Harrison. Okay. I'm completely not prepared for this interview of myself, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, because I'm focusing on Paul T. Goldman. Yes. (laughs) I have so, I mean, I just, this is like, I feel like I won this time with you at a charity auction, like with famous people, because (laughs) you need cliff notes with this. Yeah. I have, okay. Please, anything. I'm happy to. Yeah, I, I mean, know that. Uh, yeah, let, yeah. What, what, what can I? What do you? What can I help? So with? What Jason, do you know? <laughs> Jason Walliner is the creator, writer, and director of Peacock's Paul T. Goldman, which has been described as a half docu, half fictionalized series, limited series, and. Um, everyone must watch it period i i just saw that it was it was just listed as one of the weirdest things from 2023 and i love that i mean i assume that you love that too um (laughs) sure (laughs) it it was really funny because when i was asking somebody about it before i had watched it before i i really binged it because i i didn't mean to binge it all at once but it's so good i said well what's it you know i'm going to be interviewing jason what's it about and they go well i can't tell you because it's like it's overwhelmingly great so wait let me get into it all right how do you describe paul t goldman the man or the show the show and the man i should get i mean the probably the reason it took me 10 years to make is probably because i'm not very good at describing it i should have like an uh, an elevator pitch but basically it's a it's a documentary project it's a docu-series about a real guy uh, who wrote a book about how he met and married a woman who he discovered had a secret double life and uh, the actions he took, basically, when he came to believe that not only was she conning him out of money, but she was part of running an international crime ring. And so, I I mean, there's so many fascinating parts to it. So Paul T. Goldman is really Paul Finkelman. That's Paul's real name. Yeah. But Paul goes by Paul T. Goldman. That's when he wrote the book under. Right. Yes. And so but how did you 
get the idea to actually cast him as himself. So Paul tweeted at me uh, in 2012 saying that he had an incredible story to tell and asked for my help, you know, bringing it to the screen. He said he had written a book and a screenplay. He said screenplay is written. And he put in a link to his website to uh, find out more. And so I, I looked at his website and he had a video that he had shot himself and he told a story and I became very interested in him. And I read his book and I just fell in love with the book. And for a minute, probably thought about, oh, could I option this and write something? This is he seems like such an interesting character. Once I really watched him for a while and got to know him, it became very clear that Paul is the story that I was most interested in in Paul telling his story, in his perception of things, in the details that he chose to highlight. That to me was the most interesting part of the story and was trying to think of a way to film it where it would kind of mirror my experience of just becoming very captivated by this person and seeing all sides of him and trying to figure him out. And so, yeah, I just thought, oh, well, you know, the most interesting thing would be to put him in this and just watching it, knowing that you're watching someone kind of walk through their own memories of their life and their experiences and change things sometimes and pay attention to specific things and ignore certain things. And I just thought that would be an interesting way to do it. But at the well, same wait, time, I, I have to also tell you that you're, I mean, we know from all your, that your direction is masterful, but the fact that you directed a real person doing his real stuff and he was, it was so confusing to me too because it was like wait is he an actor I really and he's also this this character study as you said that you think he, he's kind of cringy but then you realize that he's really appears to be kind of a sweet guy to me anyway I find and, him to be a really sweet guy yeah and everyone on set uh found him to be lovely and, and you can see there are, of course there are awkward moments with the actors but but I hope it also comes through that by and large Everyone who interacted with him on set liked him a lot. Yeah, and and the fa- I mean, the, he's sort of this every guy, every man in that sort of a Walter Mitty. Mm-hmm. I really have like studied just like, like your stalker on this because <laughs> it, it, you kind of I felt like I must have gone to camp with him. He's like <laughs> that guy. I even looked up like I must know him from somewhere because. Growing up in a certain, you know, middle class Jewish upbringing, we, you know, going to camp, I feel like, yeah, I knew this guy. (laughs) I felt the same way. I felt I mean, that's probably why from very early on, felt very connected to him and came to think of him almost like the way you would think of a family member. I always I I felt there was something maybe it is just uh, being, you know, Jewish East Coast. But, yeah, I definitely felt like I knew him right away. So why did you make this? Because it, 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 a lot of things must captivate you. But why this? And it was it's complicated. It was complicated to have your vision. It was complicated to pitch it and to sell it and to actually do it. It's not a normal show. I just try to follow my instinct and my obsessions. And I couldn't. I was very excited about the potential of this, about doing something that didn't feel like anything that it, that had come out. And, you know, I grew up loving documentaries that were portraits of, of interesting people and, and would kind of 
go deep and examine them. And um, there's uh, this movie, American movie I really loved. And um, like uh, this movie, Grizzly Man and Errol Morris does a lot of projects like this where you're just really trying to figure someone out. And and I, you know, I think Paul is funny. He'll be the first to tell you he's funny. And he knows that there are elements of him and his story that people laugh at. But I always thought there was something more there. There was something very interesting to me. Like you were saying, I felt I felt connected to it. I felt like there was something, you know, his story is very extreme in a lot of ways. It doesn't mirror anything I've gone through. But at the same but, time, but I, it makes you feel vulnerable, right? Like, yeah, for a left turn. some Yeah. You know? Yeah. And he does, you know, the choices he makes are not choices I would make. But I always felt like there's something at the core of it that was very relatable to me that I really felt that his is a story of someone wanting to be loved, which is the most universal thing we all want is just to feel like, feel like you're loved and feel like you have worth and, and to do that through an identity of like, this is who I am. And cause you know, just trying to be like, why am I so captivated by this? Putting it together is like, Oh, well, this is, you know, maybe it's about someone who was looking for shortcuts, you know, wanted this, wanted the, what he thought was the perfect family and wound up in Russia in a so-called, you know, mail order bride situation. Not a, not a typical thing, not something I or any of my friends have done, but, you know, and something that people, you know, have a certain opinion about. But I was like, well, this is just someone trying to have a family in a in his own unique way. The same thing with this business that kind of blew up. The same thing with his second marriage. But the second marriage blew up in a way that set him on this path. And then I saw, oh, he, he thought, oh, maybe this will be my identity as a crime fighter and if you've watched the whole show you see that didn't work out and but that turned him into well i need to tell my story then he became an author and through this kind of unlikely creative path contacted me got this thing made and the show became part of the story and so it was just watching each step of this looking at it through the lens of like uh, this guy's kind of search for an identity and search to feel like he has value it's a very odd story there's so many weird things in the story but i thought that part of it had such a human core to it that i thought it could it could resonate with people it certainly resonated with me i i mean there without giving things away because everyone should watch this it it makes your brain work it's like there's wordle and then there's portal which is like <laughs> the three-dimensional of, of this this is the three-dimensional of content yeah that's great I, that's a really great way to put it <laughs> So, like, even the actors that you, I mean, I really was going back and forth going, wait a minute, are they the real people or are they the actors? Like, the wife, the wife of, you know, the main wife. So she was an actor, right? I mean, I'm still not really sure. Who, play, uh, who plays Audrey? Yeah. The Audrey, um, Yeah. Yes, yeah, that's Melinda McGraw. She's an incredible actor. Has been. I knew her from Mad Men. I was a big fan of that show. And um, I thought of her when we were trying to find Audrey. And she, but she's also been on so many other great shows and, um, and movies. She was, uh, I think in the, the dark Knight, And I mean, she's just a, a great actor and I, I thought she'd be great as this character, but no, everyone except Paul is a professional actor in those dramatized scenes. Everyone Wait, except the psychic is there the real psychic and the actor psychic. Yes. So the real psychic medium, Terry J uh, is on set. She's interviewed. And then in her scenes, we had uh, Dee Wallace uh, from also from a million amazing projects, who was probably best known for being the mom in E.T. She was playing her in the 
scenes that Paul wrote. So who wrote the screenplay? That- Paul wrote every word. He wrote every word of dialogue in the show. Really? That's yeah. crazy. How's that possible? I swear to you, I swear to God, I did not write it. I did not write a single word of this of this show. There's so many levels. I was trying to explain a friend of mine has COVID and I said to him, he's, you know, what do I binge? I go, oh, you have to watch, watch this Paul T. Goldman. And he goes, what's it about? And I go, I, I can't tell you, <laughs> but you have to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I know I, it probably is a barrier to it being a big hit because it's so hard to describe. Besides, I was hoping people would just say exactly what you said is just tell their friends, you just got to watch a show, go in blind. It'll explain it just, you know, just kind of settle in for the ride. Um, but it probably would help the show to have uh, a logline. <laughs> we, we need a log line. Jason. It's a docu-series about a man, a real man trying to take down his ex-wife's crime ring. <laughs> it's the closest <laughs> I come. But it, obviously that doesn't scratch the surface of all the no, different. No, no, that's not. Yeah. And, and it you, doesn't really uh, work. You think he's going to be cringe, but he's not. You ended up like, yeah, I'd have him over for dinner. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, I really like him. He's yeah. a complex guy, um, like we all are. But but he's not the loser that you think he's going to be. He really no, is. I don't know. He isn't. Yeah. And that's why. Wait, so Paul, you see, Paul, well, Paul, wherever you are, I didn't mean that. I just meant that, you know. No, look, he knows. By the time I met him, he'd already made shirts that said what a schmuck on the back that he was thinking he would wear during a, uh, his speaking engagements and promote himself. So he's aware of that side of the story that people, you know, could hear this and see him and see this and think he's an idiot and think he's a schmuck, as he says. But, you know, I yeah, I don't. And I and I always wanted it to get yeah deeper than that. Did you watch you, you watched all of them, all six? Yeah, so okay. I'm afraid to say anything. Like, you know, no, no. Yeah. 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 So um, but it's not, you know, this is your genre. I mean, what about you? You're the director of Borat subsequent movie film. I, so or subsequent yeah. movie, the film. Borat no, no, it, no, you, you got it right. So they, they call it Borat subsequent movie film. Part two. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about that. Tell me about how did that come to you? That was a, a true adventure that was um i worked on it for about a year and a half they had been writing it already i got an email um from my agent's office asking if i wanted to meet with sasha about his new project they didn't tell me what it was um they sent me a script with you know didn't have the word borat in it but it had a, a bunch of clues and i figured it out right away and and um you know, that was one of my favorite movies. That was my favorite comedy movie. I, I've never laughed so hard in a theater. I couldn't believe they were doing a sequel. I almost felt like if he's going to do this, I need to I need to direct it because I, as a fan, I wanted to do everything I could to make sure it, it was good. <laughs> and so I went in and within, oh gosh, I think within a, a week, I they'd offered it to me. I met, I met with him and and, and just started working, worked on the writing with them for months. And, and then we just started shooting. And, you know, COVID happened. It was going to be a theatrical movie. It was going to be Universal Studios. COVID happened halfway through. We shut down for a few months and and then kept going and did, you know, they're like the, the big him living with the guys and the gun rally and then hopped on a plane and did the Rudy Giuliani stuff in New York and then hopped on another plane and was in Romania doing this stuff in Kazakhstan for six weeks. So, I mean, it, w- it was crazy. I learned so much from him. I learned so much about 
what you can get away with, how to create a, an interesting situation, how to kind of create a reality that you can you can flee before police arrive and that's not a crime <laughs> if you haven't done anything wrong <laughs> all sorts of stuff uh it was it's really like there's nothing like that that kind of work and this was not you know i was much more upfront about this about this what this exercise was on this show i didn't have to sneak around i didn't have to lie to people with that you're creating a a fake reality to shoot you know you're shooting with people who don't know they're in a comedy movie with this i was able to be very clear with people but there were definitely things from that experience that i was able to take into this project so you meet with sasha and what's he like he's lovely he's just he's great he's so charming and funny and uh charismatic that you know you just want to get on board and do something crazy. And I had, I think I came into that meeting with the same energy. And I think that's why we got along where I came in saying you made what I think is the funniest movie of all time. It's probably a mistake to make another one. You have to be more ambitious. You're going to have to top yourselves. This can't be lazy. This you, know, you just have to go for it. And I think we complimented each other like that because he would come up with the craziest idea and I wouldn't know any better considering what he's pulled off in the past. And I would be like, all right, yeah, let's figure it out. And so it was just that for the next year and a half of just being in these very crazy situations and uh, trying to get something usable out of it. But it was, you know, it's nerve wracking to do something like the the debutante ball uh, scene where they do this, he and his daughter, Maria Bacavola, do this dance. And they were, you know, those people were angry. They chased us out of there. They were these drunk Georgian guys. And uh Sasha and, and Maria had already escaped, but they thought my name was Chris and they came looking for me. Um, a bunch of guys like pulling their jackets off to beat me up. And I was just like running out the back door of that place. And it was uh, it was wild, but no one no one got hurt. And I, I was just very, you know, I was mostly afraid that we'd be making a mediocre uh, follow up to to a movie I love. So that was what the real fear that, that kept it me surpassed. It was you know, uh-huh. so were there. OK, I got to ask you this. The Rudy Giuliani scene. What really happened? That really happened. What's it's in it? It's I mean, I walked him into the room. I was I wrote the elevator up. This is like this is you walk into you. How'd you get him to agree to this? So he thought he was participating in a documentary about how great the Trump uh, response to COVID was. And he, you know, he's wait, but who did who did you guys say you were? a fake production company you just make a fake company make a you know fake website and that you know we had a trailer we had everything you kind of you create a reality that is has uh-huh. enough details that's believable enough when you're trying to really hoodwink someone uh and and they're very good people that can do this <laughs> and so you communicate with a, a team and i mean all this is out there because like who is america they reached out to a lot of politicians and their people, you know, would go to the press sometimes be like, oh, he almost got me. And so some of these techniques that, you know, I'm only talking about stuff that's kind of been been talked about already. But um, because also, you know, Sasha is rightfully very protective of his process. I don't know if he'd ever do anything like this, that that kind of a movie again. But, you know, he Rudy thought he was participating. He, he thought it was an opportunity to kiss up to Trump. And so we got him to do this interview. We met at this hotel. You heard Wait, it was- I, I gotta ask you also, like, so how much did they vet you guys? I guess not that. Much. I mean, I know. I mean, it had to be. Yeah, it's like a, it, it's like you're almost like a spy or something. Like you have to. There's months and months of work that goes into landing a politician like that. that. You know, they and their teams are on the lookout for. I mean, specifically him because he's the one that does this to politicians, especially after his show, Who Is America. 
Um, and so they have to change their language. They change their approaches. They change, you know, it's just always, it's, it's, it's a very, very slow, careful orchestration to, to make these things happen. Wait, and will you describe the scene that I'm talking about? Oh, okay. yeah. So Rudy is sitting down for an interview with Borat's daughter, Tutar, and she, the whole movie has been wrapped around her getting delivered to him to be a, a wife <laughs> and uh, to, to curry favor with the American government to help their home country of Kazakhstan, which is a very heightened fake Kazakhstan. It has nothing to do with the real Kazakhstan. Um, so, you know, uh, this is the climax of the movie. I thought it was really exciting. I'd never seen it before to do a climax of a movie with real people because there have been so few movies that use real people with an actual kind of villainous public figure playing the villain of this movie with no idea that he's in a movie. I thought it would be the heart of his. (laughs) Yeah. I can't, I'm so, we're supposed to be a nonpartisan. Yeah. Okay. Well, I can say. (laughs) And so, um, and so we set up this interview. You thought he was going to talk about Trump. Yeah. So in the movie and then Borat is supposed to sneak in and, and save her at the last minute. And so what we did was we, we had a hotel room and we had built a cubby into the wall thinking that his security would do a sweep of the room. We'd built wait, all these. Wait, things. back it out. So did they do, wait, did you have to get permission from the hotel? Like where was the hotel? Or you just built? You built no, we just built it. Yeah. You can do stuff in a hotel. <laughs> if how, you did can... they, how, wait, how did they not notice that you're like, you know, making, so you just like, I really want I don't know. I mean, I've snuck equipment into a lot of hotels. I think this one, they may have been aware we were doing an interview or something. We yeah. set up a whole control room behind a, a fake wall or no, a real wall. But it was, a you know, an adjoining wall of the suite. We had a control room where I was watching. And um, but we knew we had to hide Sasha in the room. And, you know, he, yeah, he's talked about this a few times so I can talk about it. And uh, and so basically he was hiding behind me. I go down. I meet Rudy. I walk him up in the elevator. And then we say, you know, this is the young journalist that's going to be interviewing you. You know, he doesn't know there's 20 cameras hidden all over the room. And then we just do it. And I go, you know, I go around the the corner and watch it and, and pray that it works. <laughs> and uh, I mean, yeah, it was crazy when he's he's in the bedroom and, you know, he lies on the bed. It was like a, it was one of the craziest moments I've ever witnessed. So, so basically the scene also... They wind up in the bedroom. It's Rudy and the supposed young reporter and a uh, young woman reporter. And he says, you can give me your phone number. He asked for her phone number, right? Yeah, we didn't put any words in his mouth. He, yeah, everything you're, everything you're watching is is what he said and did. And then how did Giuliani, like, what was his... So at what point? So he doesn't know any of this. And then how does it work with permission? I mean, how does that work? Like, how are you able then... We have to make sure, you know, we can't do anything illegal. That's the whole thing is Sasha has a great, amazing lawyer, um, Russell Smith, that he works with, who's just the best at figuring this stuff out. And we figure out how to do it legally because otherwise we wouldn't be able to put it in a movie. Uh, well, how, does, how does it work legally? I mean, you know, there's a there's a release <laughs> and, and, and he and he signed a release for an interview that had language in it that allowed us to do this. And does he, I'm just I, I, I'm drilling down. It's like I have a podcast. Like, does his people ask for the release beforehand? Like, he didn't just sign it there. He did. Did. Yeah. God, even when the you know, I run the creative coalition, even when we do PSAs, like people have to get it in advance and they read every word. I don't know. I yeah, that's what happened. We have a signed release from him. 
<laughs> and uh, no, it's it's buttoned up. It has to be. We can't do anything illegal. You know, a lot of people over the years came out of the woodwork and 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 tried to sue Sasha. None of those cases went to court. Even you know uh, they were all thrown out because they're very careful. He's very good at what he does, and they have to make sure this stuff is releasable. So talk about the um the, uh, another great scene. Mike Pence is present. Oh my God! Yeah. How you did that? That was CPAC. CPAC, which is the big conservative. The conservative left. thing. This was like right before COVID. And we decided, I think, two nights before to just go for pens to disrupt the pens thing. We had to I had to be online with the whole crew. I, I would love to be a fly in that room. It's like, ooh, who are we going to disrupt today? I had to plan it. I had to plan where every camera operator was going to be with no idea of the layout of the room. And uh, how did you get in there? Did you just get press passes under some other? We couldn't get press passes. We just had regular passes. We weren't in the press zone. So we got regular passes and then they just you wait online and they let you in. So our whole crew was online at 445 in the morning wait, with, with big cameras and the whole no big cameras. That whole scene was shot on iPhones and tiny little cameras because <laughs> we didn't have press passes. Right. So I think we, we licensed some footage from one person in the press zone uh that was on our side but that was after the fact we came in we weren't allowed to bring professional cameras in we just waited online like anyone else and got in and i had to sit there for i think five hours of uh conservative speeches uh just my heart pounding you know he had to sneak in through um he was in that trump well he being sasha yeah he came in with that trump with those trump prosthetics on with another disguise on top of that and had to get through yeah, an hour long wait in line, all the security you know, metal detectors that beeped when his microphone went off and convinced them that it was his pacemaker and they let him through. And then he sat in the men's room in a stall for, I think, another hour or two until I texted him. OK, Pence is about to come on. We switched him in the seat with someone else. And I'm just on a text thread with every camera operator getting photos of what they have, deciding who to get reaction shots from, you know, and I'm queuing the whole thing via text. I'm sitting two rows in front of Sasha. My heart is pounding. And there's Secret Service guys because it's the vice president going up and down every aisle looking for anything. Right, there is Secret Service and you are doing. Yeah, you're doing the most offensive, about to do one of the most offensive things. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it worked. And want to talk about what it was. It was. Oh, he uh, he's in a Trump costume and he stands up holding his daughter on his shoulder, trying to offer her to Mike Pence. And it was just this big disruptive thing that a lot of you know people were annoyed and they started booing and chanting USA. And, you know, they just think he was a protester or whatever. No one knew it was him. And we were so lucky that it did. You know, so he did get taken in by the Secret Service question for a long time. He couldn't just pull oh, the mask off. Oh, Yeah. It was prosthetic, so we couldn't pull it off. We needed a specialist to come in and remove it. And luckily, one of the Secret Service guys knew who he was and is like, okay, this is not an assassination attempt. This is a this is a stunt. And um, that's what they're just on the lookout. If you're trying to, they don't they just want you to kill the vice president. (laughs) And so so luckily, they they don't take that lightly. So Sasha has this prosthetic of Donald Trump's face on and body suit on and so the secret service then know he's in a so does he start when he gets taken back by secret service first of all you and the other you and the camera guys are running out i assume right you're like 
No, we couldn't leave because then they would know we were part of it. Oh, so right. I, I see. I would, another... be, I would be a good part of your gang, I guess. Like, I'd be like, run! I had to sit there for another 45 minutes. And this one Secret Service guy just walks up the road, points to me, points to our cameraman. They knew immediately. They're like, okay, he's in on it, him, him, him. And they had their eyes on us. I was like, you know, oh, God, what do I do? <laughs> and so and then in the meantime, they were questioning him and ultimately realized it wasn't a threat. And they were like, just get out of here. Please don't come back. Please don't come back to CPAC. Wait, um, did they, did, so so you guys with the film, they must have known that there was film somewhere. Yeah. We basically, we get the cards out. They came around to the hotels. They were trying to get the film. We were running around. They were pounding on doors of the hotel. We had our, our DIT, which is the crew member who holds all the cards of the footage, she, you know, she stuffs them in her underwear and runs out and runs out the building and then made a and got, you know, miles and miles away. And uh, so the footage was safe. And then we just all we all, you know, skipped town. It's, it, it is like a legal it's like a bank robbery where someone where you have very bright people making sure that every element of it is is actually legal um, and that you're not doing anything illegal. But it has the it, it's what I can only imagine a, a bank robbery feels like to pull one of those things off. That's why Paul Tinoma was easy for me after doing that for a year. It's like this, like I can deal with some awkwardness and some, you know, interesting moments on set because I'm used to running from Secret Service. And I just want to have one other question, I guess. It's so when you're filming, when you were in there, you're covered like by releases that are probably all over the building that CPAC has saying you, know, you might be on camera. So you're. By yeah, walking. that's a public event. So you're allowed to film at it and use it. Yeah. And then I one other question about about the Borat movie that you did. There was one part where you really with the Holocaust survivor. Yes, that was sort of you broke Sasha broke character, right? Um, Yeah, we wanted to make sure that that did not come off. You know, that scene is in there because we thought it would be important to have a real Holocaust survivor there's not you know there's fewer and fewer left uh, on camera affirming that it happened with the rise of holocaust denial and we we thought it it, it was an interesting opportunity to make a, a statement and have someone who actually survived on camera and you know that said we didn't want her either of the women to feel burned or like they were tricked um and so afterwards we were very straightforward and and revealed this is not a hate monger this is a jewish actor who is doing this kind of thing and this is the kind of project it'll be and it is it is anti-holocaust denial and um and she and her friend uh were so understanding about it and so lovely about it but yeah we wanted to be of course sensitive to that because we never wanted it to feel like we pranked you know someone who had been through that it's okay to do it to an attorney general (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay okay so you have you have boundaries (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, everything is a, a I mean, it's not just about, you know, messing with people. There's ethical even for every scene in Borat and everything I did in, in Paul T. Goldman, like you're always obsessed with the ethical implications of it and what you're saying and who you're saying it about. And is this, you know, you're 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 because it's always about playing that line of like like with with this show, I you know, I knew it's a real person and some of it will be funny. And at the same time, I really didn't want it to feel like a prank or mean spirited to anyone involved, but also wanted to be raw and honest and and interesting and and embrace awkward moments. And so it is you're always trying to figure out how to navigate this stuff. 
and you and Sasha Baron Cohen were are really a team. And and were there times when you decided you, you just could not come? To, how did how did you coordinate? How did you you know two smart, brilliant guys? Were you always on the same page? Um, no, not always. No, um, you know, and that's I think part of why he hired me is is I had very strong opinions about what was right and what wasn't right for this. But we love each other. We get along. We still get along to this day. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a healthy, creative relationship where people are bringing two perspectives to it. And you're and you're navigating that and trying to figure it out. And some things he was very adamant about. Some things I was very adamant about what should or shouldn't be in this movie, just as a, coming from a, a fan and kind of a, a comedy snob and wanting to, you know, make it come out as good as I could. And then he, you know, knows knows the character, of course, better than anyone else, knows the rules of the world, knows his instinct, you know, ha- can have the funniest instinct of, of anyone, is the only person really who who really does what he does. And, uh, you know, if anything, I was there to provide perspective and push back and and just kind of, you know, me and the other writers, he has a team of writers he's worked with for, for a long, long time, and, and they're all very, very brilliant. And it's really just about kind of creating this this big interconnected brain with all these different uh, little brains <laughs> and and trying to figure out the the best the best way to do things. What was the most challenging scene for you to shoot? Um, I mean, CPAC was probably the most nerve wracking. The Debbie Tump, all those big stunts where we only had one chance to do things. I knew, you know, I, they had told me on the first Borat movie. Uh, which was directed by the great Larry Charles. Uh, they they did a lot of this stuff three times and were able to use the best one. This, because we were trying to hit a deadline, it was, you know, COVID. It was, we 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 were racing to the finish. I knew we could only do, you know, the CPAC thing was, was, was once. You know, when he moves in with the guys, we had timed it so it would go right in, excuse me, into that uh, gun rally. I knew that had to work. If that didn't work, we you know, we'd be in trouble. We'd have to remove that part of the movie or, you know, so it's that kind of stuff that I knew, well, we have to get this or else we're in trouble. That's the stuff that was the hardest, the most, most nerve wracking. So looping it back to Paul T. Goldman, the great Peacock series. Um, <laughs> it's, I'm not even, you know, Peacock, you should be, a, you should be a sponsor of this podcast. <laughs> but Jason makes it easy to talk about what is one of the most challenging scenes or episodes that you did for Paul T. Golden? I mean, the whole thing was so challenging because we had to shoot the whole series in 15 days and there's, you know, well over a hundred scenes and locations. And I wanted to get the most out of each scene um, and allow Paul to throw in ideas and try to embrace them. But also we were under the gun time-wise, um, you know, especially there was something like there's a scene where he and Audrey, a scene that he wrote, a fictional scene that's in the fourth episode where he and Audrey reunite in this uh, jailhouse interrogation room. And he had written it to be this kind of like emotional catharsis. Oh, yeah. Pretty, yeah, it was it. very interesting to me because it was like, oh, this is the he's he's aiming for this closure that he never got to have. He never got to have a conversation where they were able to kind of, you know, talk about it or make sense of anything or, you know, it just, and, and I was using it to try to like explore something, you know, interesting there that I, that I found and, and try to hit some kind of emotional truth. And it was the most intense acting scene in the show for him. It was the first scene Melinda who plays Audrey did 
in this shoot. Uh, she shot with us other stuff in 2017, but she came back and that was, you know, you try not to do big emotional scenes early in the shoot. It's nicer for actors to get into their characters, get warmed up. Um, but because of the schedule and the location availability, we had to start with that scene. And so it was intense, but, uh, you know, I, I thought we got something interesting out of it, but it was, yeah, the, that, you know, it, it's reflected in the show that it was an intense shoot day. And another great thing about the series is it because this is not a stereotypical cringe guy. There's so many facets of him. You do get to be like, yeah, yeah, I, I get him. I could be his friend. And even that scene, you, you know, it made me think of, it may probably make, you know, makes, I've, we all have relationships where we wish we could have rewritten the last scene or, or come to some closure. And I even was, you know, as, as I'm laughing, I'm crying, but I'm also thinking, wow, how would I have written? If I could have rewritten that scene of that breakup, how would I have done it? And so it, 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 in the midst of comedy, in the midst of dark comedy, you do become reflective. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. That was what that was what I was hoping is is people could see, you know, well, this story, the details of it aren't so similar to to mine, but exactly what you're saying. Um, I think we all turn the events of our lives into a story uh in our heads and 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 kind of focus on certain things and leave out other things. And I think he just does it in a way that's very unique. But but I, yeah, I find that very relatable of just imagining. I oh god I've spent so much time imagining cathartic conversations with people I've been in right. relationships or friendships with and you know you just you're in the shower and you're spinning and you're just seeing a I scene should have said, I should have said it this yeah is- yeah you just don't you don't write it people don't normally write it and get to film it but I I do think that's very universal it was sort of a gift that you gave him also that's not, I hope so I I, I hope so I, I was hoping you know, like I said, I do like him. And, and hopefully through part of this, he was able to look at his story with a perspective in certain ways that, that he hadn't before and, and hopefully get something out of it. And of course, I was cheering, saying to him, what are you kidding me? You're you're too good for this. This No, stop, stop. She doesn't deserve the sympathy. So, <laughs> that's I, great. I got very emotionally involved. Oh, that's I great. Can't, I, yeah, I can't let you go, though, without talking about the last man on earth. Sure. I love that show. And you, so, all right, to give the, our audience the synopsis of Last Man, I think I'll let you do it because you're the writer, director. I didn't write on that show. So I directed 12 episodes of that show. I was just so lucky to be a part of it. Um, I'm a huge fan of Will Forte uh, and Phil Lord and Chris Miller were the EPs on it. And um, so I just, I, I knew those guys. I didn't, I hardly knew Will, but um I uh, they brought me in after the they made the pilot and they brought me in to direct it. It's about what starts about being about the literal last man on Earth. There's like I mean, this is very long before COVID, but there was an apocalyptic virus that wiped out everyone on Earth except this one guy. And then at the end of the first episode, he meets someone else played by Kristen Schaal. And she's an old friend of mine. And so a lot of friends were working on the show. And then I made a lot of friends through the show. Actually, the, the DP, the director of photography of, of that show, Christian Springer, uh, shot the, the first episode of Paul T. Goldman, shot the pilot uh, that, back in 2017. And we're old friends. And so uh, he shot the first season of that show. And 
Yeah, I just was lucky to get to work on it. It was it was uh, you know, a sitcom on Fox about a, a group of uh survivors of the apocalypse, but it was yeah, it was the uh, apocalypse I, happened to be a virus. <laughs> that, so wait, when so when co- wait, were you following COVID in real life before it became you know, a popular thing to talk about every day or were you as no, it was like being hit with a tidal wave. It was crazy. I um, it was the day the lockdown was the day after my son's second birthday. He's four and a half now, and like everyone, it was just it happened. I have one friend who is very uh, aware of online stuff, global news, and he was saying there's something bad going on in China, and yeah, and then suddenly it was here. But I remember being at CPAC, which I think was February. Yeah of 2000 of 2020 and i just remember there's not a you know no no covid no one's talking about covid no one's testing for covid there's not a mask in the site and then i was just in the men's room at at that convention i saw one guy just like vigorously washing his hands and just for for a minute <laughs> i was just like what the hell is he doing what is oh this guy's got really bad ocd and then it wasn't until a month later i was like oh no he was like he knew at, at CPAC of all places, he was like, something's coming and we better start. I mean, at the time, who even thinks that has anything to do with your. Yeah, you had directed a show that was completely based on <laughs> this premise of a virus eradicating humanity. Yeah, I mean, it just seems so crazy, though. I know they did an episode that one I didn't direct. Um, I think John Solomon directed it with Kristen uh, Shaw and uh, Kristen Wig. Um, that takes place during when the virus is striking and you just start seeing people start wearing masks. And I mean, it really, people were sharing clips of it early COVID because it really mirrored what was going on in a crazy way. It was years before. It completely mirrored it. Like, and I remember going back and looking at that. I mean, it was just like, wait, what? Yeah. No, I had no, I didn't, I had no idea that that was, I mean, that was the most shocking were thing. You, you must have been just smacked when it was like, wait a minute. <laughs> You know, fact. Luckily, everyone on Earth didn't <laughs> didn't die. <laughs> but so far, we're good. I think. Oh my God! Yeah, what a crazy mass trauma to have experienced together. I was just like, I hardly think about those early lockdown days. Remember when the world was like actually fully shut down? We lived in New Rochelle. We live in okay. New Rochelle, where it was you know home of the first super spreader place. Wow! And I remember the New York Post headline: New Row Hell. I mean. <laughs> It's like, all right, this is good. We're going to be able to sell our properties. <laughs> we could not even get, so the grocery shelves were bare. We could, we had to get like Instacart deliveries. They wouldn't, they wouldn't deliver to us. And um, I ended up then mowing friends of mine in Pennsylvania and they shipped me food, shipped us food. Wow. It was weird. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, we still have like the bunker with the lentils in it. <laughs> So Crazy. come over for lentils. <laughs> and comedy is your thing. And you also directed two Patton Oswalt specials. What was that like? What's Patton Oswalt like? Oh, he's he's sweet. He's great. Yeah, no, I I mean, I grew up loving comedy and I've gotten to work with so many um, people I admire. And uh, yeah, early on, I was, God, I don't remember what years those were. But yeah, I did a few comedy specials and it was fun. I, I stopped doing that because I just felt like, I decided to try to really focus on on work that I felt like only I could be doing, which, uh, you know, trying to get this show made or, you know, 
I mean, Borat, I felt like I, I had to do it. I felt like, I, yeah, I, I would, <laughs> I just felt a, a duty to it. But I just felt like all that and, and certain sitcoms, Last Man on Earth, I had a great time on and felt I was able to contribute. But a lot of comedy specials or other sitcoms that have guest directors, I, I, I kind of learned early on, it wasn't as, as much as I liked the people, it wasn't as satisfying creatively for me because I, I, I felt like anyone could be doing it. And so a comedy special is, you know, they're very, you know, there's, there's very innovative ones, but most of them are very standard. But so that's, that's kind of why I stopped doing them. But, uh, but that, you know, I, I love Patton. I had a great time doing that. When you're doing patents, do you, does he have a vision for the special? Is it your vision? Is it the network's vision? And, and do you use footage that's already been, are you shooting at his shows? Tell, tell me about that. Yeah, no, that was, you know, he had ideas for what he wanted to do, for what the feeling would be and how he wanted to dress, you know, just every decision, you know, what the set would be. And then as a director, you're kind of weighing in and you're just a creative collaborator and overseeing it, seeing it from the booth and, you know, for that, there are just these teams, you know, live camera operators are kind of their own world, lighting designers instead of directors of photography. You just get people who do this all the time and then you tell them what you want it to look like and feel like and they'll set it up. And so for the specials I did, you know, I mean, I, I've seen, yeah, really interesting comedy specials, but it's never been a desire of mine to kind of try to reinvent that form. I always felt like it was just like you just showcase the performer and you don't put a lot of style in the way. You just try your best to kind of simulate what it's like to be in the audience. So, you know, they, they're they really trying, you know, generally their hour out that they want to do. And you're shooting two shows often where the first one, they're just making sure they got it. The second one's looser and, and a lot of times livelier and more fun. And you use a lot of that. And you and then if something doesn't cut, you you know, you cut to the audience and you, use, you go to a clip from the first show as like a backup. But you know, it's, it's, it, yeah, no, it's, it's fun work. It just wasn't, it wasn't like what was getting me most excited. Uh, so that's kind of why I stopped doing that. But you must be great at it because, you know, you did two, you did two other comedy specials for Aziz and Sorry. Yeah. Well, we started out together. He was, he's an old friend and uh, we had a show on MTV called Human Giant. That was a sketch comedy show. And, uh, and so, yeah, I did his specials around that era and yeah, it was the same thing. It wasn't, it wasn't, those weren't, you know, reinventing the wheel, but uh, they're fun. Well, we'll talk about Human Giant for a minute. So it was you and Aziz created this? So, no, I was just starting out. I was doing shorts uh, by myself and with a few friends and going to Manhattan a lot. You know, I was living, I dropped out of Sarah Lawrence College. I was living in Fleetwood. I was going to the city a lot. I was oh working. Oh, my God, you were really a Westchester guy. Yeah, I was working oh, in Kayak. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't, know, I didn't think I would finish college. Because I always had a hunch that if I could do this, it wouldn't matter if I finished college or not. So I, I was didn't want to leave home very far. And, uh, you know, I didn't really take advantage of college, but I made some shorts there. It was a, It's a small film program. I was able to get my hands on equipment right away. I was able to learn how to edit on a computer that was just kind of starting moving from like tape and film to uh, nonlinear editing. So I taught myself a lot of stuff and then I dropped out and made a bad movie with some high school friends and regrouped. Oh God, we all did that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Got a job like editing uh, educational um, videos in Nyack and then was just making stuff. And then oh meeting- you even got the job in Westchester. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you're a Rockland Westchester guy. <laughs> yeah. Just go to the, give you the key what's to the that? Have lunch at the Palisades Mall every day, and but you uh, did know you could cross the bridge, right? 
I know I was like a little bit afraid I guess of really leaving home and but then I I loved comedy I would go see comedy shows all the time and wait where'd you go where'd you go to the comedy shows where did you like there was um there was a show called invite them up at a bar I don't know if the bar exists anymore called Rafifi that was a lot of very funny people doing shows then I would go to the UCB theater a lot I don't know I don't think they have that space anymore but just met people. I was never like a hustler. I never like was pushing DVDs on people. I was just like around and started. Which actually I don't understand when, when people like bring their, they used to bring their DVDs with them. I'm like, really? Like, <laughs> up in the morning you go, Oh, got to put the DVDs in my pocket. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some people, everyone's trying to figure out how to yeah. break through and how to be, you know, the one who gets noticed and, I've been very lucky. I, you know, I've, a lot of it's been right place at the right time, being tenacious and just sticking with it. And, but there have been, you know, times, especially early on where I was just like, I failed. I made that terrible movie when I was like 20 and I was like, I'm done. <laughs> and then a few years later started making shorts. That's kind of when I met Aziz. I met these two other writer, performer, comedians, uh, improvisers named uh, Paul Shear and Rob Hubel. And the I, just gave an award. I just gave an award to Paul Scherer. Oh, he okay. Yeah, he Great. is wonderful. He's like, lovely. Yeah, he's like another. Work. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, he's like another great old friend. And we just started making videos together and showing them live. It was it was right before YouTube kind of happened. And it was like 2005, six. And uh, and then. MTV was like, you guys want to do a pilot? And so suddenly we had a sketch comedy show. And um, and then we just kept going. Yeah, I just kept working. So what's next? I have no idea. I uh, I have a bunch of things brewing, these kind of long-term things. And I don't know what will happen next. But I have, you know, a few scripts I, I've written or working on. And nothing, nothing uh, you know, announceable yet. But But hopefully I'll be... I, I'm going to take a minute <laughs> and I just finished editing Paul D. Goldman a week ago. So I'm going to take a minute and, uh, and recalibrate and get my head back uh, and, and figure out what, what I'm doing next. So last question, what advice would you give that 18 year old kid from Palom, New York? What piece of advice would you give him as he's not crossing any bridges into the city? Really? Yeah. Just keep going. Just keep going. And, uh, it's, you know, it's okay if, if your work is bad, uh, you know, you, you have to make bad work to, fi- you have to make mistakes to figure out what you did wrong. And that was the value of making this terrible feature when I was 20, that luckily no one I think will ever see. Um, <laughs> but it now taught me a lot. Sell it, you know, it's the guy that did. <laughs> you like Borat and you like Paul. I think <laughs> I've, I've, I've gotten rid of most copies of it. There's nothing floating around online. It's really bad, but it's a kid. It was like a student film. But it is embarrassing. But I'm glad I did it because it really taught me a lot. And you just have to work on listening to your own instincts about what's what's working and what's not, and not kind of making excuses if something is not as good as it as it should be. And so you should just be be hard on your work and keep going. <laughs> and, and, and that's it. Yeah, just keep going. Well, it's, it's been a joy to meet you. Thank you. Thank Same. you. Same. Thanks and, so much, Robin. This is a pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into this week's episode of Hollywood at Home with the Creative Coalition featuring Jason Wolliner. For more information about the Creative Coalition, visit our website at thecreativecoalition.org or visit our social media. 
That's at The Creative Coalition on TikTok and Instagram and at The Creative C on Twitter. See you next week.